If you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, and that can be found on page 492 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take this Bible home as our gift to you. Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And after taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning to hear your word, to understand and comprehend your word, that it might take root in our hearts and produce a harvest for your glory. Lord, we have no power or ability to make that happen on our own. Lord, I have no ability to do that in in anything that I say this morning, but it is only through the power of your Spirit that you can open deaf ears and bring us to newness of life, Lord. And so I pray that you would accomplish that good work in each one of us here this morning. And that you would, as always, receive all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. We are continuing our series in Mark this morning. For those of you who are maybe new to us, uh, we are preaching verse by verse through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And this morning, we are finishing chapter 7. So we are are getting there. Last week, if you'll remember, we saw Jesus leave Galilee and journey northwest up into Phoenicia to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That would be uh, modern-day Lebanon. And in most of Jesus' ministry, as we've seen up until this point, has taken place in Galilee, specifically around the Sea of Galilee. But here we see Jesus journey into Gentile lands, Gentile territory. We see him heal a Gentile woman's daughter, as as Gabe did so well in, in teaching us last week. And then in our text today, Jesus journeys to the Decapolis, which means the Ten Cities, the region of the Ten Cities. This is another Gentile region, and we read about him healing a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. Now, if you'll kind of think back... Over the last six chapters, we have seen Jesus, to this point in Mark, do some really incredible, miraculous things. In Mark chapter 1, we read about Jesus healing a leper. He puts his hands on him, one who is unclean. Instead of Christ becoming unclean, we see that the leper is made pure, that the leper is healed. In Mark chapter 2, we read of Jesus healing a paralytic who is lowered down through the roof because of the crowd surrounding Jesus. Not only does he heal him and tell him to get up and walk, but he says, get up, your sins are forgiven. In Mark chapter 4, we read of Jesus calming the storm. He speaks to the wind and the waves, and the wind and the waves obey. They listen to him. They obey his command. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus casts out a legion of demons into a herd of pigs. Later in that same chapter, he raises from the dead a 12-year-old girl. He he brings her back to life. And in Mark chapter 6, we hear of Jesus feeding 
the, the group of 5,000, which was actually, including the women and children, probably fifteen to 20,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fishes. And then later in chapter 6, we read of Jesus walking out across the sea to meet with his disciples. Just absolutely incredible, incredible things that Jesus has done to this point. And so we get to the end of Mark chapter 7. And we read about Jesus healing a man who is deaf. And, and that's, you know, every miracle of Jesus is good and remarkable. But it's, it's easy to wonder after seeing all the incredible, miraculous things that Jesus has done, it's sometimes easy to wonder why this kind of seemingly random story is included in Mark's gospel. This is, this is the only place where we read this story. Uh, Matthew and Luke and John do not mention this particular story. It's only in the gospel of Mark. And, and when we consider the other things that Christ has done, what I just mentioned, it seems almost anticlimactic compared to what Christ has already done. It's like, okay, he's, you know, he's walked on water, he's raised the dead, he's, he's calmed the storm, what comes next? Oh, he's just, okay, he's healing a deaf man. That's, that's good, but that's not quite as impressive as what he's already done. So our question this morning, here's what we want to answer. Why is this particular story, why is this particular miracle important? Why does Mark include it in his gospel? And what does it tell us about Jesus, about who Jesus is, and about Jesus' heart for us? That's the question we want to answer. Now, to answer that, we first need to look at the wider context of this particular section of Mark's gospel that we're currently in. Our text today is found in a portion of Mark, specifically Mark 6.14 through 8.30. So essentially Mark 6, 7, and 8, where Jesus withdraws from Galilee, and his primary focus at this point is to teach his disciples. And what Jesus is doing in these three chapters, Mark 6, 7, and 8, is he is demonstrating to his disciples who he is. Who his, what his identity is. This section of Mark deals with this question, who is this Jesus? Right? I mean, the people know Jesus. He was raised with them. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. He's, he's the carpenter's son. But, but now he's, he's teaching with authority that we've never heard before. And he's performing signs and wonders that we've never seen before. Who is this guy? Right? And that's what Jesus is showing his disciples in Mark 6, 7, and 8. So we open this section of Mark in Mark 6, verses 14 and 15. And and this section opens with the people of Israel discussing who they think Jesus is. It says, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's, that's what Herod himself thought. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Now, as, as we've seen in our story, Jesus at this point has become quite the celebrity, Right? Jesus is is really, really well known, especially in the region of Galilee. And everyone has their opinion about who Jesus is. Well, he's John the Baptist. He's, you know, back from the dead doing all these miracles. No, he's not John the Baptist. He's Elijah. He must be Elijah. Come back. Well, he's not Elijah, but he, you know, he must be one of the prophets of old. Maybe, you know, some a prophet like Moses or like Daniel or like Isaiah But Jesus, in Mark 6 through 8, is going to tell the disciples exactly who he is. So we open this section with the people questioning and thinking about who Jesus might be. But we close this section of Mark with this statement 
from Peter in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 29. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Now, these answers should be familiar. And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets, right? Those are the exact same answers that we just heard in chapter six, right? And he asked them, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Who do you say that I am? Let let me ask each one of you here this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? That is the most important question that you will ever deal with, that you will ever answer in your life. If you're a young person this morning, right? There are a lot of important questions in life, you know. Where should I go to college? Should I go to college? Who should I marry? What kind of career should I pursue? Should I have children? If I do have children, how should I raise them? Right? These are big questions. These are important questions. But these are absolutely nothing compared to this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he merely a prophet? Right? That's what Muhammad taught, the founder of Islam. Is he just a prophet? Is he a historical figure who lived a good ethical life? Someone we should try to kind of model our lives after. Is he just a really good teacher? Or is he someone completely made up that we've just used to manipulate people? Or is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior? And this morning, in our obscure little text... Our obscure little story in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us exactly who he is. So we begin our story, verse 31, and right off the bat, we're going to see Jesus going on a very interesting journey. Verse 31 says, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, let, let me help you just a little bit with the geography here, okay? We, we've, got, we've got Galilee here, which is kind of more the northern area of Israel. And then about 35 to 40 miles northwest of that is the city of Tyre. And then even farther north than that is the city of Sidon. So we've got, we've got Galilee here, we've got Tyre up here, we've got Sidon up here, and then we've got the Decapolis way over here, which is east of the Sea of Galilee. And so all that to say, Jesus here is taking the very, 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 very long way home. That would be like someone in Plainview who is coming back to Lubbock Saying, well, yeah, I came back to Lubbock. I went through Amarillo and then Abilene to get home. Right? And we would say that, that's a strange route you took. That doesn't really make sense. And it's baffled commentators why Jesus would take this massive detour to get back home. What, what is Jesus doing? Is, did he get confused? Did he get lost? Did he take a wrong turn somewhere? You know, did Mark maybe get some of the details wrong here? Well, no, but but we know that Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, his perfect sovereignty, is going precisely where he intends to go. And he's preaching the gospel to precisely whom he intends to preach it to. And he's calling precisely those whom he intends to save. Jesus takes a really bizarre long way home. And, and we have no idea what all he did on this journey. This, this would have been a journey of approximately 120 miles. Okay. Remember, this is all on foot. So he goes about 120 miles on this journey through Gentile land. We don't know what all he does. We don't know who all he sees. We don't know what all of his purposes were in taking this journey, but we know this. Jesus is sovereign and Jesus does nothing randomly 
or arbitrarily. Everything that Jesus does is for a specific purpose. That was true then. That's still true today. Right? That means everything that Jesus has done and is doing in your life is for a specific purpose. And so when God blesses you with good things, it's according to his good purpose. And when God blesses you with trial and hardship, it is according to his good purpose. And so be comforted, church, this morning, knowing that whatever has been in the past, whatever you're facing today, whatever comes tomorrow, it is always according to the good purpose of God for your life. Jesus takes this long journey, this huge detour through Gentile lands, and he does this for at least four reasons that I want to present to you this morning. Number one, Jesus is demonstrating that he has come to save not only Jews, but also to save the Gentiles. The heart of Christ... From the very beginning, before creation, the heart of Christ has always been for the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's good news for all of us Gentiles in here this morning, right? Jesus says in John chapter 10, he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's referring to the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. When God, called, when God called Abraham, he promised him that he would be a blessing to all nations, right? You remember that in Genesis? Not just the nation of Israel, but all nations. And ultimately, the blessing would come through his seed, which is Christ. That's what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3. And so we see then throughout the scriptures, places like Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Isaiah 56, many, many, many others, that it was always God's intention, always good, always God's good plan to save Jews and Gentiles. And even though the ministry of Jesus was almost exclusively to the Jews, yet he's showing here that his heart is for the Gentiles as well, that he has also come to, to save and redeem Gentiles. He's demonstrating to his disciples his care, his love for all peoples. And soon he will send them out with this commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's exactly what we see happening today as the gospel goes out to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's been God's heart from the beginning. The second reason that Jesus makes this improbable journey through Gentile lands is because Jesus is on a mission... To bless and heal one specific Gentile man. We read in Luke 15, verses 3 through 7. That's the parable of the lost sheep, right? We're fairly familiar with that. We read of the man who will leave his 99 sheep in order to go and save the one who is lost. And this parable, of course, is a picture of Jesus who will go to any length to save those whom the Father has given to him. Jesus loved his sheep so deeply that he went willingly to his death, endured the cross, endured the wrath of God, took our punishment upon himself. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how much Jesus Loves his sheep. That's the length Jesus would go to to save his sheep. Now, Jesus may have saved and ministered to many people on this journey. We, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But even if he didn't, this Gentile man, this deaf and mute man, was enough for Jesus to make this entire journey with it. There is, there is no chasm too wide. There is no distance too far. There is no obstacle too great to keep Jesus from saving those whom the Father has given him to save. That's what Paul is telling us in Romans 8, that nothing, 
absolutely nothing, no power, nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a third reason, and I would argue the primary reason that Jesus takes this improbable journey to the Decapolis. We're going to talk about that in just a second, but let's jump back into our story first. Verse 32, it says, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. So Jesus journeys to the Decapolis, a Gentile region, and they bring to him a man who cannot hear and who cannot speak. Now, imagine for just a moment what life would be like not being able to hear anything and not being able to speak at all for no one to be able to understand you. Imagine how that would affect your life. What, what an incredible good gift our hearing and our speaking are, right? Incredible gifts from God that we take for granted. This man couldn't hear. He couldn't speak probably for most of his life. Now, again, this story seems a little bit random, right? Why don't we just add it to the long list of miracles Jesus has done? And let's let's move on with the story. Let's get to Mark chapter 8. Let's move ahead. But Mark includes this specific story for a very, very important reason. The man that is brought to Jesus, as we've just read, he, he's deaf and he has a speech impediment, or he's mute, other translations say. And the Greek word used for speech impediment is the word magilalos. And that's very important. Magilalos. That is not a common word whatsoever. There are a lot of other places in Scripture that speak of the mute, and this is not the word used in those passages. In fact, the word magilalos is used only one other place in the entire Bible. Just once. And so it's probably important that we look at that other spot where this word is used. And that would be Isaiah chapter 35. So we're going to look at Isaiah 35 for a moment. Uh, But if we want to understand Isaiah 35, then we need to briefly look at Isaiah 34, because that's going to set up the context for Isaiah 35. Isaiah 34, we don't have time to study this in detail, but Isaiah 34 is describing a scene of divine judgment that God is pouring out on the land, that he's pouring out on the nations. Here's a few verses from Isaiah 34. Verses 10 and 11 says, From generation to generation, it shall lie waste, referring to the land, referring to the nations. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds. This is verse 13. Nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and an abode for ostriches. It's a very vivid description there. Isaiah is describing a land under divine judgment, right? And this this is like any post-apocalyptic, end-of-the-world type movie that we've ever watched, right? Where, you know, zombies, whatever it is, take over the world. And the, the hero is journeying through a once-thriving metropolis, right? And everything's just totally torn down there's there's plants and vines covering everything and the streets are are deserted and it's dirty and it's filthy and there's no people anywhere but the animals have kind of taken over right we've we've all seen movies that kind of depict pictures that, that depict scenarios like that this is what isaiah is describing in chapter 34, this is this is a desert. This is a place where ravens and jackals dwell, where thorns and thistles have taken over what used to be the dwelling places of men. But as we always see in the scriptures, wherever there is judgment, God also has a plan to save and redeem his people. Always. And that's Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2. 
The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Now, notice the difference in these verses compared to what we just saw in chapter 34. What Isaiah is describing in Isaiah 35 is the messianic age where God's kingdom will break into the world through the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's what Isaiah 35 is about. The coming of the Messiah, the coming of the messianic age. Listen to verses 5 through 8. This is, again, this is describing what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. Then the eye of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The desert of God's judgment is transformed into a beautiful paradise by the coming of the Messiah. And look specifically at verses 5 and 6. This, this is the key here. Verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And right here, out of the entire Bible, out of all of the scriptures, is the only other use of mogilalos. The tongue of the mute, the tongue of the mogilalos will sing for joy at the coming of the Messiah when God's kingdom breaks into the world through Christ. And there is absolutely no doubt that Mark tells this specific story and uses this specific obscure Greek word to make the point that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Jesus is the one who turns the desert into paradise. Jesus is the one who will unstop the ears of the deaf and cause the tongue of the mute to sing for joy. Jesus is the Messiah who will usher in the kingdom of God. Remember what we said in the beginning that Jesus in Mark 6 through 8, he's revealing to his disciples what his true identity is, right? He's saying, he's saying the people say that I'm John the Baptist or I'm Elijah or I'm a prophet of old, but this is who I really am. Jesus takes a long random journey through Gentile lands because of his love and compassion for the Gentiles, because of his love and compassion for this specific man and his friends. But ultimately, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am the one who opens deaf ears and causes the mute to speak. I am the promised Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one Isaiah was writing about. I am the one that you have been waiting and hoping for. It's me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. That's not the end of our story, though, is it? We pick back up verses 33 to 35. It says, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha. That is, be opened, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus takes this man aside, and then he chooses to heal him in a most interesting way. Some of you are already grossed out by this story. But he takes this man, and he takes his fingers, and he puts them into his ears. And then he spits on his own hand, and he dabs his spit on this man's tongue. Now, Jesus did not have to do that, right? Jesus is the one who spoke the universe into existence. 
Jesus could have simply said, be healed, and the man would have been healed, right? He didn't have to go through the theatrics. He didn't have to do all that gross stuff. But I think Jesus is taking this opportunity to show special love and special compassion for this Gentile man. Remember, this this miracle takes place in the Decapolis. This is a Gentile region. And the Jewish leaders considered Gentiles to be unclean, right? And if you're a good Jew, you don't mess with people who are unclean. But what does Jesus do? He takes him aside and he puts his hands on him and he touches him. And I think in part that Jesus is doing this as as a visual demonstration of his power to those who are watching, including his disciples. But also out of great love, great concern, great compassion for this suffering and hurting man. He takes this unclean Gentile, he puts his fingers in his ears, and then he spits on his hand, dabs his fingers, and dabs his spit on the man's tongue. Now, again, to the Jewish leaders, this man is already unclean, Gentiles are unclean, and spit is certainly considered unclean, right? It's one of those body, bodily fluids that you don't, you don't mess with. And so Jesus and this man would have both considered, been considered incredibly unclean through this entire encounter. We read in the Old Testament that when you touch something unclean, then you become unclean as well. But just like when Jesus heals the leper in Mark chapter 1, which, which I referenced earlier, when Jesus touches something unclean, it doesn't make him unclean. But instead, what is unclean is made clean, right? That's what Jesus does. Now, the Jews would have seen this interaction, and they would have been shocked and appalled, to put it mildly, Jesus touching this Gentile. They would have been even more shocked to see Jesus spit on this guy's tongue. You just, you just do not do stuff like that. But instead of being more, being made more unclean, this man, when he's touched by Jesus, is made whole. He's made new again. He's made clean. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of what Christ has done for each one of us. Jesus saw us in our sin, in our rebellion, in our filth, in our vileness, and yet he reached down and he put his hands on us, he took hold of us, and he made us clean. He made us whole. That's what Christ did for us. Next, the text tells us that Jesus looks up to heaven and he sighs. Uh, another translation w- would be that he, he groaned. He sighed or he groaned. And what Jesus is doing here is he's mourning the effects of sin on the world that he created to be good and to be whole. But Jesus doesn't see all the sin, all the depravity, all the corruption, all the sickness, all the disease and say, you know what, this is more than I bargained for. This is more than what I wanted to do. I'm out of here. No, Jesus doesn't do that because this is why he came to save and restore and make new. Jesus sees the effects of the fall in this man's disease and sickness and suffering, and he commands it to be reversed. Ephatha, that's an Aramaic word, which Mark translates for his Gentile audience, and it means be opened. Jesus commands, and what he commands immediately comes to pass. The ears of the man are opened, his tongue is released, And he begins to speak plainly. Now now that is truly miraculous. Think about that. This man, most likely for most of his life, possibly all of his life, has not been able to hear or understand human language, let alone speak it. And all of a sudden, his ears are opened. And what does he start to do? He starts immediately just to speak plainly. Like he's been doing it his whole life. The text doesn't say, and then he went and had five years of speech therapy so that he could learn to speak clearly. No, it says immediately he begins to speak clearly. 
That is the full power of God on display. And we don't know what he says. The text doesn't tell us what he says. But I am confident that what came out of his mouth was worship and praise and thanksgiving for what the Lord had done for him. And again, we're we're seeing here a picture of what Christ has done for his sheep, for the elect. We are, each one of us, before Christ saves us, the scripture tells us we are dead in our sin. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. Not only that, we are spiritually deaf. Jeremiah 6 verse 10 says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. The NIV says, their ears are closed. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. That's a description of us before Christ saved us. Before Jesus saved us, we were deaf to the gospel. We couldn't hear it. We could not understand it. We could not comprehend it. It was foolishness to us. First Corinthians says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. First Corinthians one. It's like a foreign language. I've, I've spent a lot of time over the years in foreign countries. And I have had many, many times where people come up to me and they just start speaking to me in a foreign language. And it's like, I know you're talking to me, but I have absolutely no idea what you're saying. I, I don't know. If, if you come up this morning and start speaking to me in Spanish, I, I have no idea what you're saying. You can, you can talk all day and all night, and I'm not going to comprehend any of it, right? You're talking to me, but I have absolutely no clue what you're saying. I have no comprehension. And, and so it is with us in the gospel. But when God regenerated us through the power of his spirit... He took his fingers, he put them in our spiritual ears, and he commanded, be opened. And he took his finger, he put it on our tongues, and he loosed our tongues to be able to speak and sing his praises. And this is the fourth reason that Jesus takes this out-of-the-way journey to heal a Gentile man of his deafness and muteness. Jesus is showing his disciples, and he's showing us that he alone is our hope for our spiritual deafness. Christ alone is our hope. Now, as we get into Mark chapter 8, which which we will be next week, we're going to see Jesus rebuke his disciples for not understanding, not comprehending who he is. Mark 8, 17, 18 says, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? The disciples, even after seeing all of the miracles, all of the incredible things that Christ has done, they still don't fully comprehend who Jesus is. They're still suffering from spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness. And Jesus, in healing the deaf man, he's demonstrating to his disciples that they're deaf too. And that he is their only hope to unstop their deaf ears, to open their ears, that they can hear and understand the truth. And if you and I would have ears to hear and hearts to comprehend and believe the gospel, then Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is our only hope. Lord, open, open our ears. Give us ears to hear. So once again, here is the question that Jesus asks every man and every woman Who do you say that I am? Who do you say this morning that Jesus is? Not what were you taught about Jesus growing up. Not what did you hear your pastor say about Jesus. But who do you say that Jesus is and does your life back that up? 
Does your life match your profession of who Christ is? Because Jesus has revealed to us exactly who he is. Jesus showed us who he is by going on a crazy roundabout journey to heal a deaf and mute Gentile man in the Decapolis. But much more than that, he showed us who he is by taking on human flesh, being born of a virgin, by his death on the cross, by his defeat of sin and death through the resurrection, by his ascension to the right hand of the Father. The question is, have we believed him? Does Jesus have lordship over your heart, over my heart? If you have not trusted in Christ as Lord, as Savior, as Redeemer and King, may today be the day when he opens your ears to hear the beauty of the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Ask him to open your ears today that you might hear and understand. May today be the day that you put your trust in Him. May today be the day that you submit to Christ as Lord and King. As the book of Hebrews says, if today you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Our story concludes then in verses 36 and 37. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more He charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The people see the power and the goodness of Christ at work, and and they are astonished beyond measure. They are absolutely amazed. And this is their response. And this is the right response to encountering Jesus. He has done all things well. Christ has done all things well. There is only one man who has done all things well, and that is Jesus. My life is a living testimony to not having done all things well. And so is yours. Only Jesus fits this description. In creation, Jesus did all things well. He created and it was good. In his work of redemption, in going to the cross, Jesus did all things well. In saving his sheep, he did all things well. And as he is making all things new, as he is preparing a place for you, he continues to do all things well. And in your life, in your life, Jesus has done all things well. Now some of you, and I know this because I know many of your stories, some of you have been through unimaginable hardship and difficulty and pain. Some of you have lost loved ones, a spouse, children. Some of you have dealt with and are dealing with serious sickness and disease and pain. Some of you have dealt with and are dealing with serious relational difficulty with with people that you love very dearly. I've certainly had things in my life that did not turn out the way that I would have chosen for myself. Our family has gone through challenges that we never expected and yet, please hear me, Jesus has done all things well. R.C. Sproul uh, tells of his friend, James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, some of you are probably familiar with him. He was a great theologian. And R.C. Sproul tells of when James Montgomery Boyce was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And after the diagnosis, he lived only six more weeks. And then he died. And so naturally, you can imagine that when he received this diagnosis, many of his friends, family, loved ones were extremely distressed and extremely upset. But this was his response to the diagnosis. He said, be at peace about this. God does all things well. 
And here is what I'm absolutely confident of. That if you are a Christian, someday you will stand before Jesus face to face. And as you look back over your life, not just the joyous moments, not just the good times, not just the easy times, but as you look back over the hardship, over the trials, over the difficulty, over the pain and the loss, you will be able to look your Savior and Messiah in the face with a heart full of worship and declare, you have done all things well. You did all things well. What a great, great God that we serve. A Savior, a Messiah, who loves us so much that He would go to any length to find us to make us clean, to open our ears, and to loose our tongues so that we might, as his church, confess together that Christ is the Son of God and that Christ has done all things well. Let's pray together. Father, we give you all praise, all glory, all honor. Only you are worthy of it. Lord, and we, we confess and we recognize this morning that if, if we are saved, if we have trusted in your Son, it is not because of anything that we did or accomplished on our own. It is not because of any goodness in us but it's simply because Christ had mercy on us. And he took hold of us, and he opened our ears, and he allowed us to hear the truth of the gospel. And he filled us with faith that we might cling to him, that we might trust him fully. And so, Lord, we we deserve no glory, no honor, but you deserve all of it. You deserve all of it. What a great God, what a great King, what a great Savior and Messiah you are. And may may all of our lives, every moment, be dedicated to telling people of the glory and the greatness and the beauty of Jesus and that Jesus has done all things well. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to take this opportunity in celebrating the Lord's Supper together to proclaim and confess to one another, that's why we do this together, that Christ has done all things well. In his sacrifice, in his death, in the giving of his body and blood for the sake of his own, Christ has done all things well. If you are a believer uh, we invite you to take part in this. If our communion workers would come and assist. If you are a believer, you are invited to come and take part in this. If you are not a believer, then we ask that you do not participate. Um, and the reason is that the scriptures tell us not to. The scriptures say when we when we partake in an unworthy manner as unbelievers, then we are eating and drinking God's judgment upon ourselves. We don't want that for anyone. But our, our prayer is that if you do not yet know Christ, that today is the day where your ears are opened, where your heart believes, and where you can confess that Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And if you need someone to talk about that, please come and talk to me after the service. Come and talk to Gabe after the service. We would love to talk to you and encourage you. But for those of you who have trusted in Christ, if you would come and partake of the elements and go back to your seat, in a moment we will take these together.
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you again for your son. We thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you allowed yourself to be broken in order that we might be made whole. Thank you that you allowed your blood to be spilled, that we might be cleansed, that we might be made holy and righteous in the sight of the Father. And thank you that because of your sacrifice, we are saved, we are adopted, we are heirs, and we look forward to eternity in your presence. Give you all thanks, all glory, all praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys would put your hands in a receiving position. Uh, Let me read a benediction over you from Matthew chapter 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, go in peace.